The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Awesome. Uh, if you are new, uh, my name is Kylam, and we are in a series called Freed 2. And this series uh, is essentially coming off the back of the previous series. So we were in Exodus uh, for about 14 weeks, and we were looking at um, the, the story of the Exodus, but essentially how that, their story is really our story. That, that we, are, in many ways, we are just like the Egyptians, that we need to be rescued by God. Um, but we've been looking at the fact that, that when God rescued the people in, in the book of Exodus, He doesn't just rescue them from, He rescues them to. He, he frees them and then He calls them to live a certain way. And as they live out that, they're living out the freedom in which He has won for them. And so what we wanted to do, we wanted to sort of continue with that idea and that theme and kind of look at well, what does it mean for us um, as people now that, that are Christians, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, you're welcome uh, here, we, we love uh, that you would come and spend time with us, uh, but the majority of us are probably Christians, so what does it look like to live as God's freed people? And so last week we looked at the fact uh, that we are free to live, particularly live by faith. Today we want to look at the fact that we are free to love. Now, love is an uncontroversial word, right? We all know that we should love. Um, every, every human being knows that we should love, that love is a good thing. Nobody is in, the, in our world thinks that uh, not loving is a good thing. Um, the difference is, is that there's a different descriptor of what love actually looks like from a Christian worldview. What is love? How does it function? What does it look like in practice? And then the question gets raised, well, why do we need to be free to love when everybody knows that we should love? Martin Luther, talking about sin, the way he described sin was that sin is self bending in on self. That is, that the sinful disposition of the human heart, instead of looking up to God and looking out to others, is bent in on itself. And so when Jesus comes and Jesus dies on a cross and then He resurrects and gives us His Spirit, what God is actually doing is He's bending us from being uh, sort of navel-gazing and to look back out and to look up to God. And that's why the, the law, the whole law is summed up in love God, look up, love others, look, look out. And so there's a sense in which we know we should love. Anybody here been married more than three seconds? We know we should love, but often we choose not to. Or we choose the action which is not loving. Uh, it's really easy to do that, and that's, that's the process of God is trying to bend us back out. And so there is this incredible letter that gets read at every wedding. From 1 Corinthians 13. And it's the, it's the love letter. <laughs> and we've probably, even if even non-Christians have heard this, this letter... Um, it's a letter around love, but the thing is, it's not talking about marital love or sort of um, that romantic love. It's talking about communal love. That this is what it looks like to be the community of faith. Those that, that know Jesus and are walking with Jesus and have been changed by Jesus, they start to look different from the world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.13, look at what he says. He says, for the love of Christ controls us controls us, it motivates us, it's, it's the thing that is the driving force of why we do what we do, it's love, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, bending in towards themselves, but for him 
who for their sake died and was raised again. And this is really important because in a practical series where we're talking about things to do, we can forget that it needs to be in light of what has already been done by Jesus. And it becomes, against, essentially, it feels like works. Just do better, do more, be better. Um, and and we, we always want to be a church that says, no, we want to be gospel-centered. We want to be reminding ourselves that it is the gospel that fuels us. So we don't just do this in order to get more love from God, but actually we love because we have already been loved by God. The love of Christ has come into our hearts, and now it is coming back up to God and back out to other people. It does not mean that God loves us more when we do it and loves us less when we don't. But the more we focus on the love of Christ that he has for us, it transforms our lives. And so what Paul is saying is you cannot express the virtue of love without the possession of love. And we love because of the love of Christ that has transformed our hearts. Amen? So this, this particular book, we're going to sort of walk through uh, three sections. What I want to do is I want to do the first section, the last section, and really spend most of our time in the middle section. Is that okay? Yep. I've got, got a few heading, heading nods. That's good. All right. Uh, 1231 says this. It says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So before you get into 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul wants to say is that love enriches. Okay? Love is the, the essence of all that we do. And he wants to show this church a more excellent way, a way that is the way of Christ, a way that is the way of love. Now, why does he have to do that? Well, let me give you a little bit of background quickly about Corinth. Corinth is a really interesting city. Out of all of the Roman cities, Corinth is probably the, the most extraordinary of all the cities. Essentially, it gets gutted for about 100 years, and it just sits there vacant. Nobody kind of looks after it. Nobody rebuilds it. It just gets destroyed in a war. And then after 100 years... Julius Caesar resurrects this city. And what he does is he sends a small garrison of Roman guards and then he lets everybody in the Roman Empire know that if you're a freed man or a freed woman, you can go there. It's the only city they do this with in the history of the Roman Empire. So essentially, you have one third of the Roman Empire are slaves. Now, if you know that, one third of the entire Roman Empire are slave people and you get into slavery mostly through debt. And so you can't pay it off. And so what happens is once you've paid off your debt, as soon as you're a freed person, you're allowed to go to Corinth. And so what Corinth becomes is this city hub where everyone starts talking about, hey, if you want to make your own way now, if you want to, if you want to be who you've always wanted to be, if you've got any skill, any gift, come to this city because this is the freed city. This is the city where you can go and do whatever you want. There's not a history of like the elite of the elites. It's like a small bunch of Roman Romans in charge, and then it's just freed people coming all over the empire. So what happens with Corinth? Corinth becomes very much like our modern city, a city where you can go and do whatever you want. Be who you want to be. Express yourself. Serve yourself. If you've got skills, go and do startups. So it's this really, really distinct city. But what happens is it becomes uber competitive because now everyone's coming to make it. Everyone's coming for the same reason. Um, this is the culture in which you and I live in, right? It's like we live in Australia. You can do anything, be anything if you want to do it. Go and do it. But it becomes competitive. 
it becomes, well, I don't want you to do so well because by your doing well, that, that knocks on my chances. And so the, the church starts to compete with itself and even in their gifts and their skills and all of the things that they bring, these, these people are becoming Christians, but they're still smelling and acting like Corinth. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, your gifts and your skills, like they're good things, they're not bad things. But it has to be now enthused by, motivated by, shaped by love. That's what makes your gift now Christian. That's what makes it distinct. And so he talks in the letter about the way that we think about food and drink should be fueled by love. And the way that we think about personal rights should be fueled by love. And the way that we think about sexuality or the use of words should be fueled by love. And the way that we think about our gifts and our successes and our achievements should be fueled by love. So here's what he says. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing this, and essentially the Apostle Paul actually lived all of those things. If you read his story, you read his life, he actually does all these things. But what he's saying is, listen, you can do God things, but in a Corinth way. And therefore, it's no longer a God thing. Guys, it, it does not matter how capable you are. It does not matter what skill you bring to the table. It doesn't matter how big your so-called faith is. It doesn't matter how sacrificial and generous you might be in the economy of God. If what we have and what we do is not fueled by love, then what? Notice the language that he uses. He doesn't say that my gift is nothing. He doesn't say that my faith or sacrifice are nothing. He says, I'm nothing. I gain nothing. I'm the clanging symbol, not just the gift. Right? So, so he uses five or six examples of good things and then says six minus one equals zero in the economy of God. Have you ever met that person who is gifted and is skilled, but every time they come into a team meeting, every time they come into something, it's like, oh man, you're more work than what, you're, what you provide to the team because of the character of who you are. You're a difficult person. Okay, there's lots of giggles going on. And if you're not giggling, I wasn't giggling either, so that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm the guy, right? But we know this, right? There's a sense in which there can be people who have amazing gifts, amazing skills, amazing charisma, but they're just horrible human beings. And Paul is saying that should not be the case with us as Christians. We shouldn't be that guy or that girl or that team member because all that we have, we bring our gifts, we bring our skills, we bring our sacrifice, but it is filled with the aroma of love. So Paul is challenging this church to let their motivation be love, not Self-seeking, not status-seeking, not self-serving, but love. And then it finishes with love endures. So verse 8 says, love never ends. And he goes over some of these things. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, meaning when Jesus finally comes, the partial will part away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, or when I grew up, I gave up childish ways. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What Paul is saying is our gifts, our skills are dispensable. Our love is not because that is what endures. I think about this in in the perspective of a house or a home. Okay, many of us in this room, we own a home. Okay, in 200 years, it's most likely that those homes are not there. All right? Someone's going to come and go, like the home that that we currently are in and we love, we're like, wow, this is amazing. Like people are going to come and go, this place sucks. I'm going to build this place. But what will last is the fact that we open up the doors to that home and welcome people in and we loved them. That will last. That will have an eternal impact. The brick and the mortar, it's just a house. That's all it is. But what happens in the house, the, the motivation in the house, how we use that house, that's what makes the eternal difference. That's what lasts. Love lasts because love is God and God is love and God will last forever. And so he's saying, listen, again, these gifts, these skills, these things that you bring to the table, they're not bad, they're good. But it is ultimately what we use behind that, what motivates us in using these things, that's what will last. Our career and our job, for many of us, the career and job that we're currently in, we may not even be in in 10 years' time. We might have moved on. We're in something else. But the way that we treated others in the workplace and loved them and cared for them and spoke kindly to them, that will have an eternal impact. And so he's saying that it is love that will endure. Jonathan Edwards, in his, uh, in his sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, he says this. He says, Since heaven is God's dwelling place, This renders heaven a world of love. For God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of life. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of a hemisphere in a clear day fills the world with light. He's saying God is love. God's people should be people of love. And it is our love that will endure. And here's where I want to get to this morning. Love edifies. This is right in the middle of this letter. And so what he does now is he wants to go through and kind of give some practical things that this is what Christian love looks like. See, our culture wants to say love is love, which means you can't actually describe it. It's just love is love. Everyone gets to choose what love is. And so for me, love is my wife doing everything for me and me doing nothing. That's love. Love is love, babe. Just love. You You love me and don't tell me what love is, you know, because that's love for me, all right? House needs to be perfect, kids, all right? Beds need to be made at this time, right? Is anyone with me? Any parents with me? That's love, okay? My kids, if you really love me, you'll clean this. Um, No, what Paul wants to say is, no, there there is descriptors for love. There is something that love actually looks like. It is tangible. You can see it, and you can say that is love, and that is not love. And God gets to describe it, (laughs) not us, because we have different, varying differences um, if you've been married for a while, maybe you've heard of love languages. Is this is how I receive love, and this is how I give love, and half of marriage is trying to work out, well, why doesn't this make you feel loved? It's like, I can tell Carly a hundred times over that she looks amazing, that she's beautiful, that she's incredible, and she's like, just clean the dishes. Then I will feel amazing. I'll feel good. Just wipe the actual bench top and vacuum around the table. Now I feel loved. And I'm like, hey, you don't have to do that. Just tell me I'm awesome. Tell me I'm a knight in shining armor. She's like, no, because you're not. Clean the dishes. 
Okay? We have differences of love, but God is saying, hey, church, this is what love looks like. And love edifies. He's already said this in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Five chapters earlier, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love edifies. Love builds others up. And he's going to tell us how. And he says this. He says, love is patient and kind. Patience means forbearing. Oh, it's a good word. Don't like it, but it's a good word. Forbearing. It's, it's willing to take the weight and carry it without complaining. <laughs> I love that. It's like, oh, kindness. It's this intentionality for goodness towards someone without reciprocity. So I'm going to carry the weight of your life without like complaining, and I'm going to, I'm going to go towards you with intentionality without expecting it back. That's Christian love. And Paul tells us in Romans 2 that this is actually how God treats us. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is kind. I think one of the greatest ways that this works in the church community is that we are patient and kind with each other in each other's growth. See, we live in a church world where we, we know all the stuff, right? So we put the expectations on everybody to live up to the stuff. And then we let each other down because sometimes we've still got self-bending into self and we're on a journey of self-bending out. But we hold each other to, to a standard and that's a good thing in one sense. It's like, yeah, we should be calling each other to, to a higher standard. Absolutely. But sometimes that calling to goes to a level of expectations and now you've let me down because I thought that you would be Jesus and you are not and I don't understand why because I certainly am. <laughs> right, And so often in the church what we get is, is we're not patient with each other. It's like everybody grows at different speeds. It, it, it takes different time. Everybody has their story and their background and, and their, their story of origin and things that are affecting them. And what I love about the Christian church is we get to lean into those stories. And when you hear the story, you're like, ah, okay, now I see why you're struggling with. And then kindness comes and goes, how can I help you on your journey? Because I don't want to be impatient with you. I want to come and show you kindness. I want to be a part of your story. Anthony Thistleton says this. He says, love waits patiently. Not only because it deals patiently, listen to this, with the loved one, but because it also recognizes that the right timing plays a huge part in securing the welfare of the other. Love does not blunder in. The Corinthians, by contrast, were all too ready to jump the gun, both in their assumptions about Paul and other ministers and anticipating in their own triumphs. I think this works out in disagreements. We just had an election, right? And, and different ones of us voted for different people. And there's a sense in which we, we should be an unusual tribe of people where the left can't work out why left people hang out with right people, and the right can't work out why right people hang out with left people. And we all go, well, it's because we don't actually worship either of them, we worship a different king. And in light of the king, we try and work it out on the ground who we think would be better in their particular roles. So right and left can hang together. Our world is not doing that right now. I don't know if you've realized that. It is, it is tribalizing more and more and more and more and more, which is a good thing because it's going to mean the church looks so different. Why do you all hang out? You're of different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds. You have different political views. Why do you hang out? Well, because we love. And to us, being right 
does not triumph being in relationship with people. And I would, I would personally love to thank this church because part of my role within Acts 29, I get to speak to a lot of different churches around Australia who have lost, lost heaps amount of people during the COVID period, not because they couldn't get to church, but because the church either went too hard with mask wearing and they couldn't, couldn't deal with it or they were too soft. So I know churches who have lost nearly 50% of their members and they've just gone and started up other churches because their political views trumped the relationship within the church. And we didn't have that in this church because so many of you are patient and kind. I have not felt that. I know some people have had opinions, but they've not used them to, to be weaponized. Can I say thank you? You have no idea how many pastors have struggled over the past few years, not just because of, of what was kind of going on in terms of the COVID experience, but what was happening inside the churches of tribalization because of political views. LCC, thank you. I felt loved and cared for. I'd felt that there was patience and kindness in our church, even if you disagreed. Thank you. It goes on to say that love does not envy or boast. In this ultra-competitive culture, right, where everybody's coming to make it, they compete. Whereas love celebrates the other. Love says, you know what, I, I, this is not about me, this is about a bigger picture. And I want to celebrate what you bring to the table. I want to celebrate your gifts. And Paul is saying to this church at Corinth, hey, the mark of Christian faith, Christian maturity is love. Love does not compete. Love is not trying to fight for attention and status. Love is seeking to see God be made much of and the church be edified. Boasting and love are at odds and cannot both be present at the same time. Love is others-focused. I'm thinking about you, your wins, your successes, your encouragement. Boasting is thinking of self, or I'm thinking about me and my story while you're talking about your story. I've got my story, and my story's way better than your story, so I can't wait for you to hurry up and finish your story, because then I'm going to tell my story, and you wait and you watch everyone's like, that's a better story. Am I the only extrovert in the room? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Loves because it's, it's others' focus, it listens. And it's willing to listen for the sake of just listening. This is one I found hard because I have so many great stories, you guys. And even if I don't have a story, I'll, I'll remember one just as you're telling yours. And I'm ready to bring it in. And it's definitely far better than your story. Okay? I am the only extrovert in the room. Okay, I'm the only sinful extrovert. That's fine. Um, what Paul is saying to them is like, hey, guys. What, what, if we were to, what if we were to intentionally celebrate others? Intentionally. Hands up if you ever think about sending someone a text just to encourage them. Hands up. I, this is a good time to put up your hand. I just want to say that. As long as you think about it. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. There are often times where we think, I'll oh, send a text, I'll send an email, I'll write a note or whatever. And then what happens? We forget. You were driving when that thought comes and you get home and then like a week later, you're like, oh, I completely forgot to send such and such a text to say, hey, thinking of you. Paul said, no, no, like, let's, let's pull over. Let's send a text. Let's be intentional about thinking through. What do you have that I think is awesome? How can I thank you? So things like just saying to someone, hey, I really appreciate how you do A, B, C, and D. I love it how you're always early to the meetings and you come prepared. 
I love it in our, in our teams when we do this, that you always respond like that. I love that. I appreciate that. Even in our marriages, for those of us who married, this is really helpful, right? It's one thing to say, I love you. It's another thing to say, hey, I love you because I love it how you do. And, and give specific examples. Love seeks to heap praise on others rather than self. Hey, I just wanted to let you know that when you pray at Life Group, like every time you pray, that does something to me. Hey, I love it when you, and just fill in the blank, a church filled with love is constantly giving out encouragement because we're not seeking to boast and prop ourselves up. We're seeking to prop others up and go, hey, you're great at that. That matters to me. Thank you. Goes on to say it's not arrogant or rude. Arrogant means to have an exaggerated self-perception, i.e., my story is way better than yours, right? That's, a, that's an exaggerated self-perception. And rude is to dishonor others and pull others down. Well, Paul says, no, Christian love frees us from having to do that. Why? Because we're already secure in the love of God. I already know who I am. I'm a child of God, right? I, I used to think about it like this when... I had some friends who were making some good coin and they were always telling me to, to steer away from the path of ministry because you don't get good coin in ministry and steer, steer towards the path of business because that's what I was originally studying. And, uh, and so they're driving around in all their awesome cars and they would just constantly tell me, like, I've got this and I've got this much, you know, if it was, if it was today, they'd be telling me how much Bitcoin they got and how much whatever they got and it'd be amazing. And I remember sitting there and going, huh, all the things that you own, actually are probably closer to being mine because my father in heaven actually owns it all and I'm his kid. It's not mine, it's his, but I'm his. And so it helped me realize like all the stuff in the world, doesn't actually how much I accumulate. I don't need to accumulate anything. He owns it all. And so I don't need to be arrogant. I don't need to feel insecure. I can celebrate that you have that. One writer said, there is a graciousness in Christian love which never, never forgets the courtesy and tact and politeness of lovely things. It does not insist in its own way. It's not self-seeking. It's not self-gratifying. It is looking to serve. It's not irritable or resentful. Irritable is argumentative or easily angered and triggered. There's... Could be a good word for our culture right now. Everybody's triggered about everything. And it's not resentful. It's not keeping records of wrong. It's not calculating lists of like, you did this plus that, and then no, but you only did four things. It's like, it's not doing, it's not doing that. Again, we see this in Christ. If you're not a Christian, this is what we see in Jesus. He is so patient with us. He is so kind towards us, and he wipes the record clean. Oh, that's amazing. He does that. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You know when someone cuts you off in traffic on that morning when you really need to get somewhere? You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? That jerk? Yeah. Hate that jerk. Like what love doesn't do is after the jerks, you know, it doesn't flip a particular thing. It doesn't do that. But it also doesn't like 10 minutes later when you see them pulled over by the police go, ha, 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 ha. It. You deserve it. <laughs> I knew, I knew it. It's crazy driver. That's not love. And there's, there's like smaller practical ways in which we can do this. When, when someone who has been struggling and then something bad happens to them in the church, we can go, well, of course that happened to them. 
No. What love does is like, oh, man, I want to move towards that person in compassion because they're still doing that. They're still going through that. They're still struggling with that, still wrestling with that. I want to move towards them in compassion because that is what Jesus does. So it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It celebrates when someone comes and grows. I've had this a number of times as a pastor where I've been counseling someone and meeting with someone and like you've poured out your heart and they, nothing has gone in. And then they come over here and they have this one, one interaction with the person. This person has this one line which doesn't, it's not even a good line. And then they come to you and go, such and such told me this, I can't believe it. And you're like, oh my gosh. Love doesn't do that. Love goes, I don't care whether you heard it from me or you heard it from me. I don't care. What I care is that you got the truth and you're growing in your relationship. I remember some years ago, I was preaching at my parents' church and I did a series in a book of Galatians and every week was called The Gospel End. The Gospel End, The Gospel End, The Gospel End. Someone came up to me at the end of that service of the last week and said to me, man, I wish we'd just preached the gospel. And I thought about rejoicing in wrongdoing that I was about to perform on them right there with the fivefold ministry of Jesus Christ. And I was like, what are you talking about? I remember being so frustrated. And I realized at that point, I wanted to get credit. And it was literally a few months later, the gospel started to get into this lady's heart. And she just started to come alive to the gospel. And I was like, that's worth celebrating. Who cares whether it came from the teaching series if they open up the book or someone told them and they got it, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate people getting the truth. And then I love how it finishes that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. To, to love, uh, to bear means to cover and to protect. Now, I want to say this. I think this is an important caveat to say that love does not protect and cover up sin and abuse. It does not do that. Paul has not been doing that in this letter. Okay, he's not saying, because that often gets used in those contexts. Well, if you really loved, you wouldn't do A, B, C, D. No, no, no. Love will call out at times when it needs to, when it's appropriate, it will do that. And love, in, in moments of abuse, will stand up for the abused and call it out and call for justice. Love will do that. Okay, but this is talking lower level sort of stuff. Okay, it's talking in the, in the practicalities of their arguments and their disagreements of this is what love looks like. And so love seeks to cover and protect. So love can't engage in gossip. Can't do that. It's not interested in finding out details or dropping in little details. Yeah, but did... I, I heard. Did you hear? You didn't hear? Well, let me tell you what I heard. Love can't do that. Because love's like, actually, their reputation matters. And I'm going to actually cover and protect them. And so I'm actually going to stand in the gap in that lunchroom where they're not there and say, well, actually, maybe they didn't think that. I'm going to stand up for them. That's what love does. Love stands in the gap. It hopes all things. It's, it's confident in God's ability. This is not an unreasoning optimism which fails to account of the reality. It's rather a refusal to take failure as final. It's the confidence that God can work all things out in this person, that God is not finished with them, and so they can grow. Love believes all things. I say this often, that we have to be people that choose charitability over suspicion. I'm going to believe the best. I'm going to believe for the best motives where I can. I'm going to try my best to do that. I'm eager to believe the best, not the worst. I'm eager to give the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to lose faith. 
And then lastly, as the band come up, love endures all things. This word endures here is not the same as bearing in that first section. It's a, it's a bearing everything but with a triumphant fortitude. This, this word here, this Greek word, it's translated as to, to bear or to endure, but what it, what it really describes is not the spirit which can passively bear things, but the spirit in which bearing them can conquer and change their very nature. It's, a, it's an affirmative enduring. It's a, it's a, it's a hope-filled possibility of like, we will endure together because we are going to see the end of what God has for us. And if you notice, all the way through, what Paul does is he personifies love. Love is, love isn't. Love is, love isn't. And I think he's doing that because then he points us back to say, and love is a person named Jesus. And all of these characteristics we see in Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he endured, Hebrews 12, on the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Right? It was a sense of he endured conquering victoriously for his people. Jesus is patient with his people. Jesus is kind with his people. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and has endured all things for you, for me. Amen? He is love. And now, for those of us who are Christians, we receive that love and we are transformed by it. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.